Well, uh, we are going to jump into our text this morning. We are going to cover uh, a, a pretty huge chunk of text, and don't don't be afraid. I um, I, I did it in in about forty minutes in the last hour, but we're going to cover full 52 verses, which is all of chapter 7. And there's a reason for it. Uh, that we're going to be looking at Stephen's sermon. And it doesn't, it's not one of those sermons. First of all, it's weird to preach a sermon on a sermon. Uh, secondly, uh, this particular sermon has a very, a very clear trajectory. Uh, and to split it up actually would cause us to lose the main point and the main thrust of it. Uh, and I think that to take it all in at once actually is, is helpful, it's beneficial. I also think, I was talking with Cameron uh, uh, earlier this week, and we were, he was talking about how, uh, how important this reading of Scripture is uh, within, the, within the context of the community. Uh, and so for us to be able to read a, a large text together and to trust that the Spirit's going to give us insight uh, I'm not going to try to give you a breakdown of every single verse. What we're going to do is the sermon is really uh, broken into five sections. We'll read a section and then just some, a few comments on that section, but we'll let the sermon pretty much speak for itself. And so how I want to kind of open this up is I think that, that there's a lot of confusion around Stephen's sermon. There's a lot of, uh, of Bible scholars who have historically been very critical of this message. Uh, convinced that it was rambling, that it was unfocused, that it, that it wasn't Christocentric enough. Uh, and I, I would be lying to say that when I first became a believer and read Acts for the first time, that I wasn't quite bored uh, by Stephen's sermon. So I'm trying to really get you guys pumped up for this 52 verses. Uh, but I, I, didn't, I didn't understand what he was trying to get at, what was the primary thrust. Uh, and as I've taken time to study it, to pray through it, uh, over the years, uh, this sermon has come, become more and more alive to me as I've seen what Stephen is trying to say uh, to those who have arrested him, to those who are threatening his life, to those who are accusing him of, of blasphemy against the temple and against the law and Moses. And Stephen's sermon is actually an incredible uh, response to those accusations. And what I want you to see as we read through this text is there's two primary themes in this sermon. Uh, the first one, the major theme of the speech, uh, as F.F. Bruce puts it, is the insistence that the presence of God is not restricted to any one land or any material building. This is a big thrust of his. This is one of the things he was accused of. This is one of the things that he continually answers throughout the sermon. And he actually hits on it in every single section. Another theme of the speech uh, is the insistence that the Jewish people's refusal to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah matched their attitude to God's messengers from the beginning of their national history. In other words, Stephen is going to use the Old Testament text that this group of religious leaders knew inside and out, and he's going to show them that they, that they should have known that this is the trajectory of their people. That every time God's, God would raise up a deliverer, raise up a redeemer, raise up a prophet, they would reject that person. And it's not surprising that they rejected their Messiah. And in spite of that, God's grace, God's movement toward a broken humanity has taken place. And what he also points out, I think, is the third theme that we see is the divine initiative. That you remember that these leaders are religious. And when we define religion uh, as as those who rest in the gospel of grace, we define religion as man's attempt to reach God by his own effort, where we would say the gospel 
is God's entrance into our brokenness, making the first move, that it is God who initiates, that it is God who is, that calls. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. He said in John chapter 16, and when the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of all sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. That God is a God who initiates, that God is a God who is with us and for us and desires to seek and save that which is lost. And I want you to see that, that this is not an attack upon the religious leaders, but, a, but actually a call for them to, to repent and to turn to Jesus. Uh, and so these are the themes that we're going to see. And so we're going to begin in verse, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. The first section is that Stephen jumps right in to Israel's history and begins with the patriarch Abraham. And, he, and the high priest said, are these things so? We saw last week he was arrested. He was accused of blasphemy. Uh, and now he's being asked. And, and I think that this is really important for us to understand is that it's not just the words that Stephen spoke, but it was the very presence of Christ in him, working through him by the Holy Spirit. Because we were told that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that he was full of grace and power. And I love that verse that we ended with last week uh, when it said, and his face was like an angel. Uh, And that is not speaking to his good looks, but to a radiance, to an illumination, uh, to the, the very realization that this is a man so yielded to the Spirit that Jesus is able to be manifested through him. So I think that we have to keep in mind the Spirit-filled man by which the words come forth. Uh, so here we go. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So Stephen begins with this recollection, this this emphasis upon Israel's own history. He's giving them their own scriptures. Do you think that these men that were listening were familiar with the text that, that Stephen was speaking? Oh, yes, they knew it inside and out. But one of the things that I want you to see is that it is possible to read the same text and not come to the same, to the same end. Uh, one of the great uh, examples of this I, I've, I've seen is I'm, I really love Karl Barth as a theologian. And I would say that he was the greatest theologian of the 20th century. But he's also one of the most misunderstood theologians. And those that love him, uh, we would all be lying to say that we understand him fully. And because he is difficult to comprehend and his thoughts are so robust and, and his writing was so vast, 
that there are people that are absolute liberals that would deny the deity of Christ and say, Karl Barth is my man. And then there are those that are evangelical uh, who hold to an orthodox view of faith and say, Karl Barth is my man. And it all comes down to how you interpret what it is that he says. Now, I would say that I don't agree with everything that he says, but much of what he says I find beautiful and profound. But the point is, is that how we, how we see the text defines, uh, defines how it impacts and affects our lives. I think the Reformation is a great example of that. Martin Luther was arguing from the same text that the Catholic Church argued from. But he came to a very different conclusion, and the church's desire was to silence him because he threatened uh, the church's authority. And I think that this is important. And one of the things that we need to see is that, that Stephen is taking their text, taking the sacred text of the Jews, speaking directly from the Torah, giving them the history that they knew well, but he's emphasizing particular things that he believes that they have missed. And he is showing them that they have misunderstood the text. And one of the things that it's important for us to understand as New Testament uh, Christians, as, as gospel-believing Christians, that you cannot comprehend the scripture apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so what Stephen is really arguing is something that we need to understand, that this book was a dead book in their hand. Because as he will point out when he accuses them later in the sermon, they have resisted the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit alone can teach them the meaning, the true meaning of the text. Even Bart held to that argument that it requires God to understand God. And I think that this is super important. The best illustration I've heard of this is that, that those that try to understand the scriptures without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is like a group of people that are in a car club that none of them own the cars, only the manual. Uh, and a, it's a silly illustration because none of you would do that. And then I realized that I have done that with a motorcycle manual of a motorcycle I can't afford. And it is silly to look at that manual because I can't afford the bike. And all it does is depress me. So there's no life in that. Uh, and so I think that this is important. So what is the main thrust of this first passage around Abraham? First of all, I think that Stephen is showing out of the gate, he was accused of blasphemy. And he shows his absolute reverence for the sacred scriptures as, and also his reverence for God. I love the phrase that he uses in verse 2, the God of glory. This is only found one other time in the Bible. Do you know where it's at? It's actually in Psalm 29, Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, and the God of glory thunders over many waters. But the God of glory, his glory is his self-manifestation. And what Stephen points out, his emphasis here in this particular section of his sermon is the divine initiative. It is a God who appeared. It is a God who spoke. It is a God who sent. It is a God who promised. It is a God who punishes, and it is a God who gave. And Stephen seems to suggest those that are obedient to the heavenly vision will always live loose to any particular earthly spot, will always be ready to get out and go wherever God may guide, if I may borrow from F.F. Bruce. And I think that this is important because for the Jews who are attacking and who have arrested uh, the Sanhedrin, who have come and, and taken Stephen captive and are threatening his very life, they have turned the temple into this, it's become their God. The law and the temple are the only places where you're going to find, the temple is the only place where you're going to find God's actual glory. And the law, keeping the law is the only way in which you're going to be accepted in, in, from the way that they interpret it. And what he points out is like, no, God actually met Abraham. Notice what he points out. He met him in a place that was not Israel and it was not in a temple. 
And even more than that, he reaches out to Abraham. It says that he appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. You know what Joshua said about this section of, of Abraham's life? Joshua in 24, 2 says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus the Lord, God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. The God had taken the initiative toward an idolater, Abraham. I think that's really important to see what Stephen is getting at because Jewish identity was very, very important to their religion as well. And what Stephen is pointing out is that God has taken, took the initiative with our fathers. You should know better than to make this about some sort of, some sort of ideological club around your national identity. You should know better because God is a pilgrim God is one of the primary thrusts of this text. I think this is so powerful what he points out. This divine initiative goes right against what he is showing them from their own scriptures. It is not religion that gets us to God. It required, man cannot get to God in his own effort, but it requires God's direct initiative, which is true from the beginning of scripture to the end. It was true with the God of Abraham, just as it was, as it was true with the Messiah that they rejected, Jesus. God has taken the initiative to meet humanity and its brokenness. I think this is so powerful, so profound. Uh, and if you see, the character of Abraham is the beginning of God's initiative, his redemptive purposes to restore what was lost in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, the brokenness and the sin that entered into humanity and all that followed is that Abraham becomes the chosen vessel, but through his lineage, God would bless the entire world. And this is why Abraham, even to this day, is such a controversial figure, uh, is seen as both the father, the father of, of Islam as well as Judaism, as well as Christianity. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that we, we, have to, we have to come to this, but I love, once again, Stephen, under the power of the Spirit, brings out the right emphasis. Abraham didn't seek God. God sought him. Abraham was an idolater. He was not a faithful Jewish man. He was a man who was following after other gods, and God intervened in his life, called him to himself, saved him. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So then he moves on. He moves on to Joseph in verses 9 through 16. Look what we have here. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, there is Stephen right out of the gate pointing out that God's servants were often rejected by God's people. Jealous of Joseph, and the patriarchs were Joseph's brothers, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer in Shechem. Now, there's a word that Stephen uses uh, in this section on Joseph. Six times in seven verses. Do you know what it is? It's Egypt. Once again, what is he trying to say? 
What's one of the, the main thrust of this passage? Just as God was with Abraham, God was also with Joseph. And God's presence with Joseph was not in Jerusalem, in a temple, for there was no temple. And Joseph was captive in Egypt. But there God's presence was not only with him. God was with him. He rescued him, we're told, in verse 10, that he gave him favor, in verse 10, and wisdom, that through this rescuing, uh, through this favor and wisdom, God was able to take the, the evil of his own people, Joseph's brothers, who, because of jealousy, because Joseph, remember, had dreams in which he, I mean, Joseph was a, a little rambunctious in his reciting. He was, he was too honest. He, he, he lacked uh, uh, couth, maybe. Uh, if you have a dream that all your siblings are bowing down to you, I, I think it would probably be wise to withhold that. But he shared it with them because that's what he dreamt. And they, they thought that the father, they saw that their father favored him. He made, remember, he made him the coat of many colors. Uh, and they wanted to kill him. But instead of killing him, uh, they ended up selling him into slavery. But it was through that slavery that he ended up becoming a man of position in Egypt through a whole series of fascinating trials and difficulties. Uh, And ultimately, God utilized the evil that his brothers intended, as he even said himself, to bring about good, actually to save Israel. Uh, And he brought the family out of famine, and Joseph was able, uh, God was able through Joseph uh, to bring forth salvation uh, for the beginnings of Israel. And this is a, a fascinating story. But once again, we see Stephen's emphasis is here that God's presence is not defined or dictated by a building, but it's to, God's presence is found wherever God's people are found. Uh, that this is his world and that his presence uh, cannot be escaped, but it can be missed. <laughs> that is something that we need to understand. Remember Jacob's famous line, when he woke up from his dream and he said, he says, God is in this place and I did not know it. I think it's one of the great fundamental issues that we face as Christians. Uh, Stephen is trying to show these religious leaders that you have it wrong. The place to find God is not in this temple. The place to find God is where men and women who have faithfully responded to his call um, walk with him in obedience. Jesus always said, follow me. God seems to be a God who's on the move. Uh, And I think that that's important for us to understand. Look what he goes on to say. He moves on to now a really long passage. This is verses 17 through 41. uh, And this is speaking directly about Moses. I believe that the reason Stephen is giving Moses uh, great precedence uh, is because Stephen is directly being accused about uh, his statements around the law and around Moses. Uh, And so he is utilizing his, uh, his understanding of Moses to once again teach them the things that they have missed. And so he begins here, he goes, but as the time of the promise drew near, in verse 17, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. As this time, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. I like that Stephen adds that. It's not found in the Exodus account, but I, I just like Stephen's, we're reading a sermon, and he's not, he doesn't have notes in front of him. 
He's just going straight, spirit-led memory. And I think that really uh, what he's declaring as he's guided by the spirit is God's favor upon Moses. I don't think it's that Moses was just really attractive. Uh, but I don't know. I've seen the movie, and he is pretty handsome. Uh, he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months. I realize that everyone who's played Moses is really good looking, because didn't Christian Bale play him too? Yeah. Batman played him. That's amazing. <laughs> and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. I believe Stephen is putting that in there as, as a direct challenge uh, to the very people that have arrested him, that they are not recognizing one of God's servants right now, that they miss Jesus just like their ancestors missed Moses. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them, saying, man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled. And did not dare to look. Then Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is the key, key verse in this section of the sermon. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. It's one of those powerful passages uh, in the Old Testament that points forward to the promise of the Messiah. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. I also feel like this is a rebuke from Stephen. For the law had become dead in their hands. And Stephen reminds them that it was meant to bring life. It was meant to bring life. This is why Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. This is what they're accusing Stephen of saying. But Jesus himself said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to, I came to fulfill it. He gave us living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. Here's that other theme that continually comes up, that Israel's history it was marked by a rebellion against God's servants, that God's own people rejected God's answers to their problems. Uh, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us 
out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. Stephen divides his account of Moses into three 40-year periods. It is a longer and more robust probably because he has been accused of speaking against Moses. And he leaves his judges in no doubt of his immense respect for Moses and his leadership and law-giving. I, I think it's after the first service, this man goes, so was Moses 120 years old or is that just a story? And I'm like, it says he's 120 years old. I'm going to just trust that he was 120 years old. Uh, but I think that this, the, the, the statement, uh, if we can get caught up in nuances around, around things like that, but I think what's important is what is the primary thrust. And verse 33 is that thrust. Look what it says. Take off your sandals from your feet when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. He's in a wilderness. He's in a desert. And there's a shrub on fire. And God tells him to take off his sandals. What was the Jews' vision of, of holiness? You enter into the temple and you enter into the holy place. And then there's the holy of holies. Uh, and there's these realities of God's. There are these places that are to represent God's holiness. But this passage, Stephen, is bringing emphasis to the minds of the religious leaders who have lost sight of the fact that God is a God about people, not about buildings. And this statement was central to Stephen's thesis. There was a holy ground outside the holy land. Wherever God is, that is holy. I think that's important uh, to see that this is a main thrust. Moses, whom the Israelites had rejected as their ruler and judge, was now appointed their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so the lesson we learn from the experience of Moses is that God is everywhere present and that the holy place is wherever God may be. It's focus. It's the emphasis of his teaching here. And look, he moves now to a direct uh, challenge of their view of the temple. In verses 42 through 50, he says, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, foreign god, and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our father had the tent of of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Does not my hand make all these things? And so here he brings up the very words of the prophets that says that God's, God was not found in, in houses made by hands. Heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. I love there's a statement actually made um, by John Stott in regards to this sermon, he says, what we can draw from this sermon is this. The God of Israel is a pilgrim God. I love that. Who is not restricted to any one place. Key assertions in his speech are that the God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was still a heathen in Mesopotamia. That God was with Joseph even when he was a slave in Egypt. 
that God came to Moses in the desert of Midian and thereby constituted the place holy ground. That although in the wilderness God had been moving from place to place with a tent as his dwelling, yet the most high God does not live in houses made by men. It is evident then from scripture itself that God's presence cannot be localized and that no building can confine him or inhibit his activity. If he has any home on earth, it is with his people that he lives. He has pledged himself by a solemn covenant to be their God. Therefore, according to his covenant promise, wherever they are, there he is also. It's a wonderful synopsis of the sermon. And then I think on the second theme, what's so powerful about what Stephen does, because a lot of people have been critical of Stephen not declaring enough Jesus in it. But what he is utilizing is the stories of the Old Testament to show how they are all shadows of the reality of the rejection of the Messiah, just as they rejected Joseph, just as Moses was rejected, uh, just as the prophets were rejected, so was the Messiah. And this is a part of Israel's history, but God's ability to take what was intended for evil to bring about what is good is one of the profound uh, realities of Scripture. Uh, and one of the profound realities of what it means to be a follower of Christ, where he even enters into our life and takes what has been horrible and evil and turns it around for what is good when we give ourselves to him. And I think that that is something that cannot be missed uh, within this sermon. And so look here. Stephen goes from a lecture on the Old Testament to just, he just just flips right here. And this is so good. And he What seems like this kind of slow-paced, gentle, uh, exposition of the Old Testament. Now he just comes straight into the, the working as a prophet. It's like the prophetic voice just takes over. The accused literally becomes the accuser here. And he uses a term that was used by Moses and the prophets. He says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. So they killed the prophets who talked about Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Not only did your fathers kill the prophets who said that Jesus would be, would be coming, you actually killed him. <laughs> you betrayed him and you killed him. Now, Stephen, in this moment, he calls the Sanhedrin stiff-necked, and that means stubborn. Uh, but there are three things that he basically accuses them of. And the three things, the first one is this. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This is one of the things that Jesus said that I found be, often many people find to be one of the troubling passages, that every sin will be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And we've often, people have asked me, well, I'm worried I've committed that sin. And I always say that that sin uh, has a unique correspondence to who Jesus is talking to and what he's dealing with. And this is the very same thing that Stephen is doing, is that Stephen, you remember, is full of grace and power. Signs and wonders are being done through his hands. Uh, he literally is illuminating glory like Moses did uh, when he came down from the mountain. There is, a, there is a supernatural reality and presence over this man's life, just as there was over Jesus. And Jesus, who went through the land doing good, healing the sick, casting out demons, and yet they still knew that the work that he did was by the hand of God, but they still needed to snuff him out because they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. They willfully rejected 
the only possibility of salvation. That is what it means to resist the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is not you saying something dumb. It's not you doing something really bad. It's not even in those moments before you were, before you were a Christian like myself who made all sorts of really horrible statements about Jesus and about the gospel and about the Bible because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. There is a very unique, specific reality happening here, and that is when someone is given a revelation of the gospel, they know it to be true, and still say, I, I reject this. I refuse this. Because how can there be forgiveness if you reject the only one who can bring forgiveness? And so what Stephen is doing is saying, you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. This is what you did. You killed the Messiah. And what you're experiencing right now through my preaching is once again the Messiah functioning by his Holy Spirit. What they saw in Stephen was Jesus. It's no longer I who live, Paul said, but Christ who lives in me. And so he accuses them of resisting the Holy Spirit. And and then he says this. Number two, the second accusation is that just as their fathers killed the prophets before them, they have still not admitted that they killed their own Messiah. They haven't just rejected the gospel, but they actually were responsible for the, for the false accusation and murder of Jesus himself. The third accusation that he, that he brings against them is the thing that they accused him of. And he turns it back on their heads. And he says, listen, you have received the law, but you have not obeyed it. For true obedience to the law flows out of a proper faith and understanding of the living God. And I think that this is important for us to see because Stephen's speech was not so much a self-defense as a testimony to Christ. And his main theme, I would argue, was positive, that Jesus the Messiah had come to replace the temple, fulfill the law, which were both witnesses to him. John Calvin said it best. He says, no harm can be done to the temple and the law when Christ is openly established as the end of the truth of both. (laughs) I think it's a wonderful way of, of stating it. But notice how they respond to his gospel. I, man... I've seen people fall asleep when I preach. I've seen people get really bored. I've seen people get mad. I have never had anyone throw a stone. Uh, I thought it would be a good way, as, as people are, as we're wanting to grow as teachers, if we handed out um, pebbles to people on Sundays. Just if Josh just, just could have done better on that one. Just smack. Oh, ow. I, I meant this, actually. <laughs> but what happens? Look at this. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That has never, I don't think that's ever happened to me. But he, I think this is so powerful, full of the spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I want to just stop there because uh, Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open, the son of man standing at the right hand of God. What does the book of Hebrews say? When Christ ascended to the right hand of the father, he was what? Seated. Now, Hebrews focuses on Jesus as being, uh, being our, our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron, uh, not in the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priests were never allowed to sit in the temple because the work was never done. And so the seated position of Jesus as king is showing that the work has been finished. So why does, why does Luke uh, record it this way? Is there a contradiction? And I, I would argue that there is no contradiction because Jesus has finished the work, and that is the emblem of being seated at the right hand of the Father. But we also need to know that Jesus is our advocate. Um, he, is, he is our intermediary. Uh, 
and he is our trailblazer. And I like what F.F. Bruce said about Stephen seeing this. He says, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God, standing there, ready to receive him into his kingdom. I want to once again point out that the power of Stephen's sermon were not simply the words that were uttered, but it was the presence of Christ being reflected through him. And here in this moment, he knew when he brought those three accusations directly against these religious leaders that he was a dead man. There was no doubt about it. Know this, that the Romans had actually eradicated or removed the ability for the Jewish people to actually bring execution uh, for violations of the law. So this is mob action. This is illegal, what they did. Uh, It may have been in accordance with their own scriptures, or at least their interpretation of the scriptures, but it was not allowed under Roman, Roman rule. Uh, and so what happens next? It says this, when, they, when he says he sees Jesus and they see in him the light of Christ, what do they do? They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. The only thing they could think to do is we have to silence this man. We have to, we have to stop this man from speaking. We cannot hear his words anymore. They could not handle the condemnation that came through his plea for them to repent. It's fascinating. It is the love of God that causes repentance. But it is possible that the love of God can be too much for people because it exposes so much darkness. And this particular response, and we know that some that responded with violence actually turned to faith because one particular man, Saul of Tarsus, was, happened to be in this crowd. Uh, and I believe that Stephen's sermon had incredible impact upon his entire ministry. For Paul, as he became, uh, is the master of utilizing the Old Testament to declare the, the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. But look what happens. They cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I just want you to know that the first thing that he says is being killed is the last statement of Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross said seven statements. The, the, the final statement was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen shows us something fascinating. He doesn't say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit trusting Jesus to bring him directly to the Father. Uh, I think that this is a a powerful picture that we have before us of of Stephen once again, empowered by the Spirit, reflecting even in his death the life of Christ. And then he says this, uh, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. And this is fascinating because this is the first statement of Jesus from the cross. So Stephen mentions the last statement first and the first statement last. It says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How is he able to say those words as he's being stoned to death? But think about Jesus's words on the cross. As he was having nails hammered into his hands and his feet, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I always have said that that Jesus's declaration of, of those words was not him pleading with a father who is angry. But he says, I only say those things which please the Father. Jesus also said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For him to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he was in essence uttering the very heart of God himself. 
It is the Father's heart to forgive. And Stephen, in a moment of absolute yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, his life being snuffed out from him, as I decrease, Christ must increase. And I believe that as death was at at his feet, he is literally on the verge of, of giving up his last breath. As he decreased, Jesus comes through fully. And the desire of Jesus through Stephen in this moment for all of the men casting stones is, I love you. I took this into myself. I have come for your forgiveness, not your damnation. It's so profound that a man, the final moments of his life, could reflect his Lord and Savior so fully. Don't think that Stephen wasn't scared. Don't think that it didn't hurt. (laughs) I think that it was horrible. I can't imagine. Stoning it to me is just like one of the most brutal uh, ways to to kill someone. I think even in the Jewish law, the establishment of it was was almost to protect people from death because those who threw the first stone, uh, for example, you read those passages of, of if your kid's really rebellious, you can stone them. But who's going to stone their kid? I mean, you've got to be a pretty lame parent. <laughs> so I think, that, I think that this is just a brutal death that Stephen is experiencing, but that yieldedness allows the full life of Christ to break through in these final moments. And there he falls asleep. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. All I'll say in closing is that Stephen ended his life illustrating the very sermon that he just preached. He was taken out of the temple. He was taken to the, to the place where people are cursed. He was stoned to death. And it was there that he experienced the greatest revelation of God's presence. God's presence is found wherever his covenantal people are found. This is his heaven, his earth. We are his people. He is with us. He is for us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. I pray that our lives would be poured out in such a way that the world would be able to see Jesus in us the way that those individuals were able to see Jesus in Stephen. May we be an influence on the next generation's Saul's who become Paul's. I always think about that. Lord, if I could just be an influence upon, upon someone who the world's yet to hear from. That's enough, because I have you. And the one who has Jesus has everything. Amen? Let's pray.